Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, where it's my job to introduce you to people from the world of commercial property. We're talking with investors and thought leaders about their experiences of the commercial property world and sharing our own lessons from the last 20 years to give you practical know-how so that you can follow in their footsteps. If you've ever thought commercial could be your next step, but it just seems too confusing and opaque, then you've come to the right place. There are so many exciting opportunities in this dynamic sector, and I'm looking forward to pulling back the curtain and sharing them with you. Good central banking is 98% talk and 2% action. Hello and welcome back to the Commercial Property Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Alexander, and today I'm really excited to have Adam Lawrence with us to talk about the Bank of England, interest rates, and the economy. Uh, I'd actually put a post on LinkedIn, Adam, that you'd picked up on and, and left a little bit of a message on. I thought, Do you know what, this might be the person I need to talk to. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, Jerry. Yeah, no, I appreciate you coming on. And just, I think most um most investors and business owners will be struggling with just what's going on with the economy at the moment and what the bank of england think is going on with the economy but just before we got on to that should you want to just give us a little bit of context i know that you've got a pretty large portfolio that you've been working on Adam, and you haven't been doing this for too long 2008 was that when you got started so 2008 i became an accidental landlord um started taking it seriously back end of 2011 did some my first sort of proper purchases, I suppose you would call them in 2012. So yeah, yeah, yeah it, well, 12 years of uh, of graft by now, but yeah, it's uh, it's been a fairly quick journey because I found a few things that worked well and just sort of stuck with them, rinse and repeat. You know, while the window of opportunity was open, etc. Yeah, I, et I, I think yeah, it's probably it's fair to say for some people, 12 years is quite long, right? But probably best set in the context about how many properties and developments you've worked on. So it, we're not talking a dozen here. Um, <laughs> where I'm, are you I'm at? Sort of 650 odd transactions in, um, most of which I've been able to hold on to. Lots of within joint ventures, almost all of them within joint ventures. Um, but yeah, that's been the, the the real speed. Well, I suppose it, it, it picked up. It was fairly exponential growth. So 2016, it really started to take off as I started using bridging finance and just being able to stretch my equity and just being able to do better deals, Jerry, really, apart from anything else. So you always hope, I think, year on year to be able to do better deals than you've done the year before. How do you, uh, do you know what, I'd, I'd, I'd love to come on to all that and maybe we need to do a different podcast about that. But just one question I've got for you is how do you manage so, so it's fine bringing in properties, and uh, it's not fine, but you find, you bring properties in each year. What management do you have in the background to look after all of that? So I have an in-house agency, and I also have some shares in some other letting agencies that are geographically located around and about. Um, yeah. I also have an agent, for example, we've got quite a few units up in Scotland. I also have an agent up in Scotland who looks after stuff who's, who's outside of house, and I tend to have contingency plans and backups and all the rest of it in place if anything goes wrong with any of those i then have a structure whereby there's an asset manager who sits above 
the letting agent, if you like, to make sure the yeah. whole portfolio is getting looked after. Yeah, that's the key one. That is the key one. How, how did you find that person? Um, so I was quite lucky. I kind of mentored that person effectively into the role. Um, right. And also they are an equity partner in a part of the business. So they're invested. They're very capable. They're, you know, master's, master's degree level trained, extremely hardworking, very bright and got a really, really good eye for detail. They're also the best administrator I've ever come across, but to call them an administrator would be, uh, would, would be, you know, unfair to their skill set, really. Yeah, you've done well there. That's fantastic. Okay, let, let's let's move on to the economy, right? So, Andrew Bailey, Governor of the Bank of England, uh, I, I sometimes wonder what is he talking about, right? And and a, a little bit of time ago, the bank started doing forward guidance. Was that under Mark Carney? Is that when they decided to do that? It was under Mark Carney. That's right. Yeah, and so they started saying, let let's give some um discussion around why we're making these decisions and you know before that it was a bit frustrating they're making decisions and you're not really knowing why and it seemed a bit dark so i can understand why bringing in forward guidance however um some of the predictions have been less <laughs> accurate shall we say i mean last summer he said we were going to go into a recession and that that recession so last summer 22 that would last all the 22 and all the way through 23 until 24 it was effectively going to be the worst recession for 100 years and we haven't gone into recession right and now he's saying we're going to flatline for the next 12 months i mean what's going on Adam? well going just handling on the um the forward guidance point just for a moment yeah. Mark Harney also frustrated a few people by offering that forward guidance and then not doing what they said they were going to do, the bank. But True. I think people kind of missed the point with that, Jerry, because that's good central banking in my book, because ultimately there's a, a Ben Bernanke phrase where it say, he said uh, good central banking is 98% talk and 2% action. And that's what you want, because you don't want the central bank to have to make knee-jerk reactions, where we've had quite a few of those over recent years one thanks to a, a surprise referendum result one thanks to a pandemic etc now I'm not saying they were the wrong things to do but markets don't like that level of uncertainty they like to know what they're doing as early ahead as possible they also like the right looking sort of particularly competent calm people in charge um and bailey i mean bear in mind the bank does use uh so it will use the market's forecast for rates as the central underpinning point for its forecasts so it yeah. says well the, so the market over the past 18 24 months at certain points has predicted base at six and a half even touching seven percent we had all of that fuss around the liz trust very very brief thankfully administration um and what the markets did after that and then the bank obviously had to intervene and buy some long dated bonds to calm the markets down and to stop some of the pension funds from going into meltdown apart from anything else so that was another knee-jerk reaction that markets don't like so what the bank does and this is i think what it maybe doesn't communicate very well sometimes is that it uses the market's impression from the forward curves taking all of the the bond markets and putting them together and says right the market thinks interest rates will be x now i'm in a relatively privileged position in that I get invited to go to the regional meets with the West Midlands representative where I live and they do bring it to life 
a lot with a lot more clarity in about a 45 minute presentation um, and then they do about 15 minutes Q&A. So I do have that extra bit of information in my armory and I understand what the bank is doing and why they use those forecasts. And the bank has consistently said for 20 odd months at those briefings or on 24 months, really, because the first hike was December 2021 in this cycle. They have consistently said, look, we don't think rates are going to go up as much as the market thinks they are. And so here's our forecast. But the way we are instructed to construct our forecast is to use what the market is saying. So this is something actually at the moment that I'm sure you've heard that Ben Bernanke, the aforementioned quote that I gave, former chairman of the Federal Reserve, um, back when the financial crisis was on, apart from anything else, um, he's now looking at, he's been tasked by the Bank of England to look at their forecasting and in uh, in 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 short words, work out why it's been so rubbish, Jerry. Apart from the else yeah. over the last couple of years, you know, and they've always been quite open about the fact that their unemployment forecasts are really not very good at all. But this is this is not limited to the bank. You know, if you look at the Office for Budgetary Responsibility, which is a similar sort of organisation that ultimately sets the landscape for the Chancellor and the Treasury to deliver things like their autumn statements, their budgetary. Um, fiscal statements that they deliver, um, their forecasting has been equally utterly woeful. You know, it was terrible back in March this year. And again, the, the, there's there's a little difference between the bank and the OBR in terms of next year's growth, which you sort of alluded to. The bank are at 0.4 and the OBR are at 0.7. And it, it's very, it's very tough. Whereas, you know, there's two real basic reasons for that, which they perhaps don't broadcast as well as they they could or should. And one of them is inflation. And therefore, the higher rates obviously have to contract or should contract economic activity. And the other one is fiscal drag. We've got all this extra debt. We've got to service that debt. So it's the fact that A, the debt is being paid at higher rates for our government debt that's linked to inflation. But also, there's just more of it because of the COVID stimulus that, that happened. And obviously, that, you know, half a trillion plus pounds that were uh, injected have to be, even if they're not, people say they have to be paid back. Whereas uh, um, I'm slightly more skeptical about the more they have to be inflated away inflated. or grown away yeah. from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then all the forecasts, of course, the, the big, the big difficulty is you look at all these forecasts and in within whatever the end of the forecast period is for the bank, it's normally two or three years ahead. Or the OBR, they're looking more like six or seven years ahead. But guess what? At the end of those forecast periods, everything's back to normal. Inflation's two percent, and growth is is cracking on. Um, but I do I do think we probably do have to remember, you know, if you look at and don't get me wrong, a lot of this government self inflicted. But 2014 Scottish referendum uncertainty, 2016 Brexit referendum and surprise result, and then five year process to work towards actually whether we're getting out or not and how we're doing it and then pandemic on top of that these are you know some fairly rare events certainly the pandemic once in a hundred years the last one was uh was sort of estimated as um whether it'll be a hundred years before another one is now a, a matter of um speculation you know yeah so you've just mentioned a couple of levers there or or, or things that have happened 
Brexit. There's also been wage rises, some of which are self-inflicted because we've put up the minimum wage. Ukraine, the huge amount of money printed during COVID, you just mentioned, and also those supply contractions during COVID because everybody closed down the factories and then the rapid bounce back, which meant that there was a lot of shortage, which obviously can lead to increases in prices. But a lot of these things are external. And in fact, even now, um, Andrew Bailey is talking about the Middle East crisis, of course, and the pressure it's going to have on oil and that that might have inflationary pressures. But, but so many of these are external they're outside of our country is in is tackling inflation from outside of our country with interest rates the only tool in the bag this is a great question and this is where people have got themselves embroiled in quite a difficult debate over the the period that we're talking about so you're talking first of all about that you know demand was not suppressed and people were fueled with government stimulus money yeah. things like furlough and all the rest of it and in fact, because they were effectively prevented from police lockdown, et cetera, et cetera, a lot of their typical social activities, leisure activities, they couldn't partake in, which weren't necessarily replaced by Zoom or Google Meet or whatever. So they bought durable goods, you know, apart from anything else. Then people have to remember that when you are involved in commodities, and of course, the whole world depends on commodities of various kinds because we're talking everything from really wheat for bread and that was significantly affected by ukraine as i'm sure yep. you know to gold to oil and gas and of course because we import and again we've done this to ourselves but probably over the course of 50 years because we are an energy importing nation we are very much dependent on and this you know some would speculate this is why we got so heavily involved in Desert Storm and Iraq and all the rest of it, all the way back to there, all the way forward to Ukraine and our own sort of self-interest in getting involved in that as well. Um, so those commodities, you have to make decisions, perhaps 12 months or even more out when you're a private company that's involved in these commodities, because you might need to recruit, you might need to lay off, you might need to work out which mine or which well or which field or whatever the equivalent is that you're going to be planting. You know, it, there'd be a 12 month harvest cycle, for example, in certain commodities. Lumber was a classic example, and that's why it's one of those ones that spiked so yeah. very much. How many trees are being planted? How many are going to be chopped down? The, the feeling in sort of April, May 2020 was there's just going to be this gigantic collapse in demand in the world. And the, the world got it wrong really yeah. because that that didn't happen and as you say it bounced back quite quickly and demand was not really abated there was a lot of saving that went on because people were very concerned during the pandemic and that's what happens when there's fear when there's fear people will hoard regardless of the interest rate which at the time was quite literally zero and we were talking about you know going negative as late as february 2021 the bank was sort of briefing on that and that and you've also touched on one of the big flaws that is inherent within central banking is that it is designed to be slow. So you mentioned um, Andrew Bailey talking about oil prices, whereas in real time, oil price spiked around October the 7th this year for obvious reasons, but actually lots of the signs after about two or three weeks into the conflict have been particularly bearish. And the most recent one where OPEC plus have come out and said, 
were cut in supply by another 900,000 barrels a day, the oil price actually dropped on the back of that, which is a really bearish sign for where oil prices are. So this is, um, why is that happening? Well, primarily because people are thinking there might well be a recession in the future. But a lot of these positions aren't necessarily congruent and the global markets don't necessarily add up. And that's what gets very confusing. So going back to the sort of the thrust of your question, are interest rates going up? Is that the, the best way or the only way in order to tackle it? Well, we've got to remember, first of all, they had already fired a lot of the bullets that they had in terms of quantitative easing, easy money. And you could really and probably should really split that into two periods sort of 09 to 2020 and then 2020 onwards and um, because QE before that was going into financial organizations largely speaking to try and lend and effectively ended up propping up asset prices if you think about the way that returns work on in, in asset classes stock market property whatever your poison is you've effectively only got equity and debt and what this did was it reduced the price of debt gigantically, which even if everything else remained equal, would increase the returns on equity for no extra work, right? That's the, the fanciful e economist's way of saying money was cheap, so it was easier to make money. And you saw these gigantic increases in sometimes in commercial property values, in private equity companies. You know, it was, it was a relatively easy business model to go in, take a company that had no debt, and a, a strong revenue generating stream, load it up with debt. And by definition, that would increase your returns on equity. And that's the, the, the cornerstone. Of course, it's harder than that, but that's the cornerstone of what a lot of the private equity houses did. What changed in 2020, when we introduced your furloughs and your bounce back loans and stuff like that, is that was more like helicopter quantitative easing, where it goes directly into the economy. So what happened to all those 50 grand loans? Well, lots of them found their way into property via auctions, via all the rest of it. And there was this huge demand because people wanted to spend that money. And of course, if they were looking at investing it, there was a 0% interest rate. So they couldn't do anything else other than buy assets that were making money. Um, so that made a much bigger difference. And that was much more inflationary rather than just asset inflation there was that price inflation that was commodity driven, first of all, then partially, of course, it gets fueled by wage demands going upwards once everyone realizes that the world's not going to end and all the rest of it. And then there's that that danger of a, a wage price spiral. Of course, companies potentially take advantage of those situations and put prices up perhaps more than they need to. They try and look after their margins. Um, they're also not necessarily investing because they're concerned about what's coming when we do get to the payback of all of these situations. And that's why the forecasts to an extent look relatively gloomy because they're thinking, right, okay, you know, in many ways, and it will never be regarded as this, but if you look at GDP, you could praise the government for having kept GDP positive this year. If you then, because, because remember GDP is adjusted for inflation and inflation has been very, very high. Yep. But then if you dial back a step from there and you look at GDP per capita, you find that that's gone downwards because what we've really done is we've imported so many people into the UK. That's the only way that we've been able to grow. And then you can go down another step from there and say, 
what about real household disposable income? You know, how much has the average household got compared to what it had in 2019? And that's when you really start to peel back the layers of the onion. And even with a, a relatively middling forecast from here until the election, you're looking at the average household being about three and a half percent worse off in real terms. And that's where they've started to struggle. But if you imagine, you know, what, what, what really happened, there was demand that was not predicted, that was also not controllable, because once the cap was out the bag, once the bounce back loan was in the bank, then the, the government and the central bank have got very little control about how it was actually spent. And of course, I'm only saying the bounce back loan is our sort of sector's most relevant example. There was extra money that people had because they had these enforced savings rates um, because of fear and because of leisure activities and all the rest of it being suppressed. You know, furlough was you know, 70, 80 billion quids worth of, of injection into pockets where people might not have expected anywhere near as much of that because we had a pandemic. Um, so if you don't control, if you don't try and extinguish demand, and, you know, the, the phrase demand destruction is not one that you'd hear from the, the central bank. But remember, that is what right raising interest rates does do. It can destroy demand. Um, and remember, we're a consumption-led economy. So if you're trying to control a consumption-led economy when there's other inflationary pressures already in there, you would have to try and tackle it with the biggest lever that you've got, which is interest rates. And I think if you were from the school of thought that thinks, right, raising the interest rate was the wrong thing to do, you know, I'd encourage you to go and look at how Turkey, for example, has reacted when they went in and tried to put the interest rate down in the face of this sort of durable goods inflation that started the issues that we've had since 2020 and their interest rate has now had to come back and go through the roof because putting the interest rate down just let the you know the, the bank always talk about it as having your foot on the accelerator for the economy versus having your foot on the brake and it, in the point of the analogy is there is a natural rate of interest at which the economy should not grow any faster or shrink any faster than it would do and that's the natural rate of infl of, uh, of interest, as, as the concept goes in economics. And whether you're below or above the natural rate depends on whether you're trying to assist with easy money policy or whether you're trying to restrict with tight policy. And I think the time was to try and restrict with tight policy. I think they communicated badly and probably also didn't quite have exactly the the metal that they needed to put the rates up perhaps as quickly as the Federal Reserve did. Um, and there's plus and minuses for that. We have been, if you look at 2008 onwards, the Americans took their medicine pretty quickly. They came out with the Troubled Asset Relief Program. They did a pretty good job of recovering from the financial crisis. Um, we took many, many more years. You could probably go, unless you were investing in London in a, a very hot market sort of from the early 2010s, then you probably go to about 2014 before the market started to pick up because we just took a slower approach to the whole thing. And that's exactly what we've done in this cycle. Now, some of the advantages of that can be you can get to see what happens in other countries, but it might be the case that faster action is needed to the downside. And what this economy and what businesses don't need is uncertainty. They would much rather have someone they've got confidence in um, Mark Carney might have annoyed a few people 
because he maybe gave some forward guidance and then didn't go through with it. But his point would be, well, that was the point of the guidance to try and nudge your behavior. It worked. And so I didn't need to actually use the lever. Whereas this bank under Bailey feel like they're always reacting to things and there's no real clarity of strategy in what they're doing. And that doesn't help with the bond markets, which increases the cost of our debt, which increases the drag on our economy and affects our economic growth. Okay, so thanks for that. So with, you mentioned about the uh, forward guidance. It is another tool, isn't it? The forward guidance. And sometimes you listen to what they say, I listen to what they say and think this is just, you know, can you tell the full truth, please? Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, why you're doing this. But actually, sometimes that's maybe saving another quarter of a percent increase, isn't it? Because of the rhetoric. Because that's exactly of the guidance. Right, yeah. But the thing is, at some point, there's going to be a tipping point where that has less and less and less effect because it's been so badly, it would appear so badly done sometimes with the forward guidance. And you just think, well, actually, that tool in the bag is really becoming pretty obsolete because we're not getting it right. Is, I mean, is Ben Benarchy going to be able to make much of a difference in there? Or is he going to be able to, what's your feeling on what's actually going to come out of that report? Is it going to be, well, okay, it was very tough. It was a difficult market. And actually, you're doing an okay job. Or do you think there's going to be something a bit more concrete? Well, I, I would hope for the latter. Um, I'd hope it's not just a job for the boys and all the rest of it. Um, mm -hmm. But a lot of these inquiries are often extremely disappointing, these reports that are, that are produced. Um, I think there'll certainly be some recommendations around how they forecast unemployment because their unemployment forecasts have been terrible and generally too bearish over the past few years. I mean... Um, I, I don't know how to say this without sounding arrogant. I don't want to sound arrogant in any way, but my forecasts have been better than the ones that the Bank of England have used. And I'm one person on my own who is applying some economic history and some common sense and some mathematics that is not by any stretch above the average A-level student. You know, it's not like I'm running some kind of incredible spreadsheet behind the scenes that's got all sorts of secret sauce in it. It's more a case of, and I, I think, what Bernanke inevitably will say is that, you know, bear in mind, we haven't had any real inflation to deal with since the beginning of the 90s. And that's pretty much true across the board. Um, we'd had a very little spike around 2011. We went up to about 5%. And then we had a little nibble above 4% in 2016 when the referendum happened, although that was almost exclusively driven by the exchange rate and how it changed. Um, overnight when the surprise result of the referendum came in. And both of those petered out relatively quickly. Um, so there was no one with any experience of this stuff at the top level 30 years before. Even the people at the top now were only juniors or, you know, perhaps in short trousers or whatever when the last time something like this happened. And what I think really disappointed me is that there wasn't that level of going back into the past and saying, every recession every cycle every hiking cycle they're never the same you know but there's a catalyst and then there's there's the resultant either job losses which are inevitable there are how rates have changed how inflation has progressed and what it looks like on the way down and that's why it wasn't particularly difficult to forecast then you have the ukraine situation which obviously did impact oil prices significantly to the upside. 
apart from things like wheat and all the rest of it, other commodity prices, and that when you're in a fragile environment, puts more pressure on things. And I think, I think if I was criticising the modelling from a distance, I would say these models were feeding in the last 10 or 15 years worth of data when we've had nearly no base rate to speak of and very, very low bond yields, right? So how useful is that cycle when we've been told for so many years, remember, you know, every year the rate was going to go back up a bit. Every year, 2010, it was going to go up a bit. 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014, they kept saying the rates would go back up and they didn't do it. And then it went up a quarter of a percent and had to come right back down again. Um, and it came right back down to a new low because of Brexit and then a new, new low because of the pandemic. Um, so they haven't done what they said they're going to do at any point in, in, in any of that. But I think they've used models are great while everything is chugging along relatively stably, right? And the problem is things have not been chugging along with stability at all. This has been a relatively unprecedented cycle. Obviously, we had things like the Spanish flu we could look back at. But I can promise you none of their economic modelling was looking back 100 years as to what happened, which, again, it was relatively easy to understand there would be a boom in durable goods and also a bit of a boom when unlocking came, because that's exactly what happened in the 1920s. And it's more psychology and people's, I mean, obviously, pandemic puts people under huge amounts of pressure, right? whether that be work, whether that be personal life, all the rest of it. And they're going to react to that probably by a bit of a mentality of life's too short. I'm going to get on with this, which means I might spend, which means I might spend outside of my means, right? But A, I've got these extra savings. Yeah. B, money was still cheap at the time, so I could borrow if I wanted to. You know, and we're a consumption-led economy, just like the US is. You know, 75% of our GDP is driven by consumption. This uh, this question I asked, maybe I... What I'm struggling with is the external stuff. So, Adam, as you've just rightly put it, it's a very hugely complex situation. There are many things pulling here. But if the economy is going along normal, which... It seems like a long time since it did. But if the economy is going along <laughs> normal and then an external factor comes along like Ukraine and it puts up world oil prices and it puts up wheat prices, do we, in an economics theory, should we be putting our interest rates up because of that inflation that's coming external or do we not? Because we can't influence the fact that things have changed in the global supply markets, but we can influence what goes on in our own country. Is that a scenario where you don't put so much interest rates up because it's the only real lever you're using other than rhetoric? Yeah, I, I, I see what I see what you're saying. And I think I would probably say, apart from anything else, those sorts of commodities are very price inelastic. So the price of oil can double, the price of petrol at the pumps can double, and we don't sell half of what we'd otherwise sell. We're still doing an awful, we would still sell 80% or more yeah. of what we sell. That's yeah. a danger. Now, that money would then, it would squash demand in other ways because people have only got so much disposable income sure. apart from anything else, right? So that's not the inflation that they're seeking to combat with the rate rises. The inflation they're seeking to combat is demand for other goods, which are more price elastic, 
which they're saying, right, we're going to have to try and counterbalance some of this demand. And you saw that Ukraine inflation filter through all the way through into October 22 because of the way our energy price caps work. And then the gigantic scheme, you know, the only sensible thing Liz Trust gave the uh, gave pulled the trigger on, apart from raising stamp duty from 125 to 250 on residential, was the energy price cap, because otherwise you would have been talking about people not being able to afford a whole variety of things, including commercial businesses to stay open and food to be able to move around the country. Yeah. So if that's the, the that's the, the government subsidy fiscal side of the argument, whilst the bank and, and part of the difficulty at the time, of course, of the, the 45 days of trust was that the bank and the Treasury were not working together because at the time the Treasury basically said, forget about the Office for Budgetary Responsibility, forget about the Bank of England, Trust preferred to try and ship all of the blame onto the Bank of England rather than try and work in concert, which is at least what's happened since Sunak took the helm and Jeremy Hunt went into number 11. Um, so they're trying to squash demand for other goods without saying we're trying to squash demand for other goods because they think that would be harmful rhetoric in the economy, right? Yeah. So they know that they're, they're basically saying, and you'll have seen this probably in some of the speeches that they've given in the last 14 months or so, and they've generally been taken quite badly. Um, Bailey's taken his fair share of flack for it. Hugh Pill took a, a fair bit of slack for it, asking people, telling people not to ask for wage rises, telling people effectively to take their medicine and everybody takes a bit of a hit and so we control inflation. They they really, it's very difficult to do that when you've got a public sector job that pays £200,000 a year or £600,000 a year if you're Bailey, you know. So yeah. it just gets ripped apart in the media. But from a pure theoretical point of view, I can understand what they're saying. You've got to remember about the Monetary Policy Committee is five or six really heavyweight economists with multiple PhDs, incredible track records and all the rest of it, you know, four of which external to the bank altogether, right? And then five who are, well, hopefully, particularly well-qualified, well-versed, I would probably argue four of those plus Andrew Bailey, who just happened to be the face that fit after his uh, lack of success, frankly, but after his work with the financial regulator, the financial conduct authority. Um, that's just the political, what's it called? Is it the Peter principle that says you always get promoted to your level of incompetence or whatever? <laughs> I'd suggest Mr. Bailey is several levels above his level of his level of competence, but there we go. Um, so they are very, very theoretical people, and they do disagree, which is one of the good things about the independent central bank. But generally speaking, even the most dovish of them, the ones who hate putting rates up, you know, wanted rates to be at about 3% before we went anywhere. And then we've got to remember, it isn't necessarily the base rate at all that determines what we all really should care about. It's the bond markets that determine all of that. And if you went back to rewind to trust, when we were at 2.25% or wherever we were around then, you know, the, the, the yields in government bond market spiked to 5%. So such a big gap between base and the bond markets. It was those that would have the impact because A, that's what the government's going to have to pay for its new debt. 
And so the government's going to have to pay for that somehow, possibly with cuts, which is what, if you recall, when Hunt came in and did that repair budget in uh, October 2022, that's exactly what he did. He, he stole from the future. He said, right, we're going to have austerity, but we're not going to have it now. But we're going to stop funding some of these government departments as well as we are with it by 2025, 6, 7 and 8. And then also there was the the frozen thresholds, which is the, the silent killer of everyone's disposable yeah. income at the moment. You know, so there have been other tools that have been used and the bank and the government do work or <laughs> should work together in order to deliver those things. I have this kind of caricature idea of Bailey, really, that he kind of just sort of bumbles along and he does what people who know a lot better than him sort of says to do. And then occasionally... Probably, I think only one meeting really in the past, um, in the past sixteen monetary policy committee meetings, was particularly difficult to predict what they would do, and that ended in a vote of five to four to keep rates the same when they were already at five point two five. I was very marginally on the side of going to five point five, in order to try and extinguish that inflation. I think what you've also the, the other probably semi-useful answer to your question is once the inflation had taken hold because of the Ukraine situation and, and really before that as well, because remember, we were already struggling. CPI broke out, you know, August 2021, right above target. So we were, it was Feb 22 before Putin's yeah. guys put, a, put the boot into Ukraine. So we were already above target and going the wrong way. And once that starts to be entrenched, there are these cyclones upwards of, for example, wage rises. Now, that in itself is is really because that needs <laughs> in 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 theory, that should be tried to be choked off. And having just said how the uh, the bank and the treasury should be working together to then see a nearly 10 percent rise in minimum wage at a wage level that is well in the market. You know, if they remove the minimum wage. There'd be lots of jobs available that would be cheaper than £11.44 an hour. Um, and there'd be people still still working in them, I'm sure. Um, but that's not going to be happening after April 2024. That's where the, the, the minimum wage is. And that in itself, let me put it this way, it's certainly not a disinflationary policy. Nope. Because ultimately, people who are in lower paid jobs spend 100%, if not about 101% of their disposable income. Right. So all of that money gets pumped into consumption. And this is where I think some of the, the risks and the concerns are for people at the moment. I mean, you know, great. We're down to 4.6% CPI, but I'm not seeing these big stings coming out of the tail next year. But likewise, on the perhaps the bright side, it makes those 0.4% growth forecasts look a bit low because I would think, hold on a second, what try and put together everything we've talked about. Uncertainty is lower. Right. Uncertainty is lower because base rate isn't moving. It's staying relatively the same. And the chat is about cuts. It's just when the cuts will come. But cuts are always viewed as positive things. Right. So we've got a workforce that's getting paid more money. And now that wage rise is going to be well above where inflation is in April 2024. So we'll see benefits. that. Who will benefit from that? Well, businesses will, because as we've said, people will go out and consume. Right. There'll be growth. Well, What's, what's up with GDP then? Where's this big drag? Well, of course, we have got, from homeowner perspective, people with their mortgages dropping off. That will then affect their disposable income as they need a new fixed rate that's higher. And the same goes for corporates where they've got fixed debt 
on a bond style basis. They replace their 2024 next year. They replace their 2019 bonds where they paid two and a half percent with their 2024 bonds where they're paying, let's say, five percent. So they're paying either double the level of interest or they can only borrow half the amount of money or somewhere in between those two positions. So you've got the 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 underlying growth from the bottom up because of the wage increases fighting against the fiscal drag factor that we've talked about on households and companies. But I would be much less bearish for 2024 than 2023, even though I was never anywhere near as bearish as uh, as the bank were with their nuclear winter depression forecasts of uh, that, 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 that meeting was incredible because that was the, when I went to the regional meet, I think it was on September the 29th, 2022. And that was just when I think the bank had their head in their hands at the time because they just thought Liz Truss was an idiot, which of course uh, that's a fair, a, a fair point of view to adopt. Um, and they, but they just let go this most incredibly bearish report, which like you say, was this, recession to end all recessions whereas happily the economy said nope we're a bit tougher than that thank you we'll uh we'll see what we can do what do you so we're all human right mm-hmm. including including some people in the bank of england even and it, it's difficult for them as a human being right it can be quite difficult to react and go against something you've said in the past so if the bank have talked things down a lot and interest rates are not going to move and they're going to stick where they are it's difficult not to look at that situation and think some of these guys are going to find it difficult to change their mind and react um, unemotionally what's your view on that i mean we took a while before we picked interest rates up whereas a lot of the world was screaming saying maybe we should be doing something about this now and now they're in this situation where they're consistently talking about, oh, inflation rates are not going to come down until the end of 24, maybe even 25. Not Sorry, interest rates, yeah. So do you think there's a little bit of an element sometimes of just we don't want to appear like we're changing our minds too quickly? I think there's definitely, I think it's a really good question and a really good, a really good topic to talk about. I think that's definitely true. People suffer with, you know, sunk cost ideologies and stuff all the time. As you could pick the people on the Monetary Policy Committee who set the interest rate and they have a a particular bent to them. They'll be doves or hawks as a general rule. And then a few will cross the Rubicon. So you know which ones are going to vote to put the rate up. Remember the last meeting, there were still three people voting to put the rate up to 5.5, right? Mm. It was only 6.3. We have to get into the details sometimes. Um, no one yet voting to put it down. There's one particular dove left on the committee. The other one had served her time and she's uh, she's been replaced on the committee. Um, but as I say, that person has voted to keep rates the same since we hit 3% base. So there's a significant difference of opinion, but also not necessarily, um, was it, was it, I can't remember who it was who said, uh, when the when the facts change, I change my mind, sir. What do you do? It feels like it should be Churchill, but I don't think it was. Um, <laughs> but you're you're dead right. I think people don't because there there's reputational risk to constantly changing your mind. Remember what we've said. You know the the markets want certainty, but really you should update your forecasts in the face of what's going on. You know I've very much changed my forecast for the housing market next year on the back of Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement because I think I can see what's going to play out 
in terms of these wage rises and national insurance cuts and all the rest of it. Um, you, you definitely should. So people definitely get stuck in ruts and don't want to admit that they're fallible. Um, there's, there's definitely a part of that. They, they are human, as you said. You know, behaviour is is significant. And, and, you know, there'll be politics on that committee because you can guarantee two or three people on the committee probably wouldn't mind being governor one day. So they'll be playing a bit of politics in there with that and perhaps trying to, you know, ingratiate themselves to the governor. And then, like any good committees, the externals that come in, they don't give a damn about any of that. They've proven their stripes somewhere else in the world. Um, and they'll come in and probably try and do their best job. But they'll all be convinced they're absolutely right, even though there might well be. And there, there was a meeting this year where there were three different um, suggested courses of action. Hold, upper quarter, upper half. You know, that's a big disparity, which probably, if you're positive about it, shows the strength of the independence of the central bank. Um, but yeah, I don't think people do want to come out. And, and also, I think they've got to, we've got to remember, you mentioned about, you know, saying that rates won't come down until the end of next year and all the rest of it. I think there's something else we've got to throw into the mixer there when we consider that. And that is that you can't really tell me that government would be deeply unhappy with a 4% inflation rate next year because they've got these tax thresholds. So it's going to bring in more tax. Although you get to feel it, you can't see why it's happening because instead of putting tax up, they're letting inflation put tax up. And that yep. second order consequence is very, very powerful. And it's actually very clever. Um, it's a bit sneaky, but it's actually very clever to do. So, and also, of course, you're inflating away your two and a half trillion pounds and growing debt pile as well when you do that. So what's not to like really from the government's perspective about inflation above target? What's little known is that between um, 2000 and the 2% the, the inflation target in the 90s was first introduced at two and a half, and then it went down to 2%. And the actual average inflation over the period before we started this inflation recycle was 2.7%. Now, call me cynical, Jerry, but that extra 0.7 is a big help for the government on the sort of budgets that we're talking about that they have to deal with. So I, I talked about this very early on in the pandemic. For me, I would have come out and potentially raised the inflation target because that would have changed what the bank should have done. So you, but, you're... Yeah, sorry, you're really leaning on to my 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 question. I want to ask. Sorry, hold your keep your thought there. Just yeah, where did this whole inflation must sit at two percent come from, and is it ever up for review? How did we decide that is the perfect situation? And just before you answer that, sorry, the inflation thing helping the government. I mean, obviously, it helps all of us as investors too, because our our rentals over time go up therefore our value goes up so yeah when you've got that leverage there as long as you can control your costs inflation can help but anyway back to the question about the two percent right yeah and a really good point as well so it came in so the central bank went independent if you remember after there, there was this big mess in the early 90s which people will either remember or have a pretty good handle on and people talk about you know interest rates hitting 18 percent and all the rest of it but basically the government was trying to run both the fiscal and the monetary policy, and it was proven, and you'll know this about government ministers, they can come in with the very barest of qualifications into some of the biggest jobs in the, or the biggest yeah. jobs in the country, realistically, which is not necessarily right. But there we go. So Bank of England goes independent. 
And the government said, right, all we'll do is set the target for inflation, which they set at two and a half percent at the time. But we lived in a world that was a bit more bubbly with with slightly higher rates and all the rest of it. We were actually following suit from a number of large central banks that had already started adopting inflation targeting as their strategy. So this is the one thing. And there's a lot of confusion about this because, again, it's one of those things the press pick up on and they make a bit of a meal of, but they don't really know what they're talking about. You know, Liz Truss went down the route of trying to blame the Bank of England for everything that had gone wrong. Classic politics, really, right? And then distanced themselves from the bank for that one and a half month period of quagmire or whatever you want to call it. Whereas in reality, as I say, they're better off when they're working together. And inflation targeting is part is the biggest part of the bank's mandate. It's not the only mandate because financial stability is also within the mandate of the bank. So when people say they're reviewing the mandate, the press go, they want the government, they want the Bank of England not to be independent anymore. Right. Now, I get if I guess if you ask Liz Trust, she'd probably agree with that. She probably would quite like that, but that's because she doesn't know what she's doing. So other people are quite happy with the independent central bank with the inflation target set. Why focus on inflation? Because it hurts everybody. I mean, as you say, the government best off, investors probably second best off, people using debt strategically with growing underlying nominal assets as you correctly say, as long as costs aren't inflating more than revenues are, in which case, of course, that's that's still hurting us. Um, but the general population that the government rely on to go to work and pay their taxes, as a general rule, through PAYE and all the rest of it, then they are being hurt by inflation if they can't afford what they could before. And that will hurt the government as well, because there'll be no feel-good factor or whatever you want to call it, when it comes round to elections and it becomes an economic issue and we'll see how 2024 plays out in the election, of course, but that hurts the government's chances as well. Um, and then they've also got to control the, the public sector where you would have the inevitable consequences of an inflationary cycle like you have done over the past 18 months in terms of strikes and all the rest of it, some of which, of course, are still going on. Um, but many of which have been resolved at effectively below inflation pay rises. And again, Jerry, call me cynical, but when they went for a lot of two-year pay deal solutions last year, and a lot of big corporates have done the same as well, I think they knew that inflation wasn't going to be as under control as the party line was saying, and thought, right, well, we'll just do next year's negotiation now, when the forecasts say that inflation will be lower, yeah. and we'll just slowly and quietly squeeze people. Um, but of course, we've been being squeezed. You know, you have to put this into context. Global financial crisis, probably a 20 to 25 year event to recover from, right? 12 years later, global pandemic. Again, I'm, I'm using these figures from economic history. I'm not, I'm not making them up. Um, 30 to 40 year event to recover from as far as pandemics go on top of an already not sufficiently recovered economy. That causes some real problems. And then there's the self-inflicted parts in terms of the referenda and all the rest of it, which have not helped in the interim either. So, you know, it's it's never going to have been easy to, to do anything through this period. Um, but that's why the targeting exists. That That's not the mandate of the bank they're seeking. In fact, if anything, the recent chat about the mandate of the bank has been to try and narrow it 
So they're focusing solely on, because I guess that the narrative is, well, if you're focusing on inflation, why have you done such a bad job? Well, we have to focus on financial stability and all the rest of it. Right, okay, well, how about you just focus on inflation? And then we'll still, now that would actually be quite dangerous if they did that. And I wouldn't necessarily support the narrowing of the bank's mandate. I think there's some clever people involved who are pretty good at what they do, who pedal under the surface like the swan, while people like Bailey make the bank look really bad with his poor chat, his lack of leadership and his lack of forward guidance. So, <laughs> so I'm conscious of time. I, I, there's lots of little avenues there I'd like to go down, particularly around about wages and the base rate of wages going up. And actually, uh, long term, th- in my head, it's going to take a few years, but effectively that will end up back in exactly the same. The value of the money will end up being exactly the same once the whole thing's worked through the system. I just get I get frustrated at that stuff. But anyway, I'm going to leave that for the moment. We mentioned there about investors. Inflation can help if you've set yourself up right. And you also mentioned about businesses maybe growing a bit more of a thicker skin. And so I just want to ask you, with the constant battering from different things that you've mentioned there over the last few years, would you agree that some businesses now just react more conservatively when they hear stuff like this and they're actually a lot of them are just getting on with it is that a fair thing or is that just too um blase to say well i think that is fair i've got limited experience working with large corporates you know very limited really you know only less than a year's worth um but they tend to set as not necessarily be massively different from at the sme end they set a strategy they have a strategic plan They have their heads of departments that try and deliver on that strategic plan. And it's set many months before the end of a year. And it's set for one year, three years, five years, 10 years, et cetera. So if you were running a a listed company at the moment, let's say, what would you be thinking? You'd be thinking, well, we've got an election next year. So I'm not going to get too excited by what was the exciting bit in the budget for corporates? Well, the extension of the write-off Um, rather than the use of capital allowances of investment funds. Now, that is an area where we've been, you know, really poorly looked after since the financial crisis compared to France, compared to Germany, compared to the US, compared to all the rest of it. And it is seen as one of the reasons why our productivity has really struggled. But would you be changing your plans in November 2023 when you know 2024 is an election year? I don't think so, particularly, um, because you'd be waiting to see what happens and who in the party will really have the whip hand, the particularly uh, particularly further left that still exists and has always existed in the party, but's probably got more presence because of Corbyn being in charge mm-hmm. before. Or would you be waiting and seeing what Starmer is really going to do and how he thinks he's going to put some value on the table? I would think in a time of uncertainty, in a time of higher rates, what have a lot of people done this year, Jerry, across the board? They've paid down debt because they've thought, hold on a second, it was fine when I was paying 3%, but now I'm paying 6%. Or if I slipped onto a variable rate, I'm paying 9 or 10%. Well, I'm not doing that. I'm just going to pay down debt, right? And so net borrowing has gone down, which means investment goes down apart from anything else, not up. Particularly, which is, which if those, is quite dangerous. particularly if those companies a margin, the end of the year margin is around about nine or ten percent, then it totally makes sense, doesn't it? You, you're actually, it 
yeah without selling any more goods you're making more money exactly exactly okay so uh the last million dollar question <laughs> <laughs> what's happening next and i'm talking specifically around interest rates and inflation what's your okay. thoughts so i think we're going to have a fairly sludgy year of inflation where it's going to hang around in the sort of three to four percent trading range for next year mm -hmm. yeah having said that i think that the forecast will improve because again i think what we'll see is slightly perverse more unemployment but remember we're at a historically very low level mm -hmm. but that will increase productivity which will give cause for hope i don't see sort of mass unemployment coming but i see a cyclical move upwards which is not being helped by the increase in all these wages nope. so that also to hold inflation up in relative terms and there's a there's a small chance of a wage price spiral starting because just because it hasn't happened so far because the inflation happened first and then the wage rises are catching up doesn't mean that we can't counterbalance yeah. and get into a 1970s style situation so it's not out of the question that interest rates would even go up before they come down i think these predictions about base rate coming down three times next year are too hopeful to be honest with you i think i would see more like holding a relatively average five percent base maybe we could get down to four and three quarters by the end of next year but there also remains a 10 percent or so probability of a significant event which means rates would have to drop because there's a really significant economic problem now i, I really hope that doesn't happen because that's your black swan sort of terror that's iran get involved in the middle east and america decide to retaliate and then we do have 150 dollars a barrel oil and then we're stuck in a really hard place where we've still got inflation and then we've got massive external inflation as you've talked about earlier but i don't want to alarm people that is a low probability event um but that's being baked into some of the the forward rates i think we could see five-year gilts which is really what we're looking at for fixed price of debt by the end of next year maybe down to about three and a half percent something like that which would see your mortgage rates back down to more like four and a half with a big fee five percent with a smaller fee a little bit of premium for commercial you know but maybe not much yeah brilliant okay well let's hope you're right <laughs> how's, your, how's your forecasting been adam <laughs> yeah well on the on inflation it's been disappointingly good um because i started talking about it in my supplement in february 2021 yeah. when the bank was busy discussing negative interest rates um in terms of did, did i see things like ukraine coming no absolutely not so that really pushed the boat from a i thought we would hit source i was saying seven percent when people were saying four and five and then ukraine hit and it's like right now it's double digits now it's double digits by the end of the year which it was um but in terms of base rate i've kept the lid on it generally speaking i thought we would stay below six um when other people again lost their lost their shirt a bit in the middle of this year when things were looking fairly negative and yields were yeah. on the rise um, but by no means have I got everything right. I've been quite good on unemployment as well, though. Whereas the bank's been very bearish, I was much more bullish. Now they're quite, they're quite bullish about how shallow this unemployment cycle will be. I think it could be bigger because I think companies will look to if they can't put prices up anymore, they're going to look to cut costs. And you're already seeing it. KPMG have announced a wage freeze along the line of a lot of the other big four. Um, shareholders will want to see cuts somewhere along the line and 
you know, companies will respond to that. And it generally is the big ones that lead and the smaller ones that follow. It's going to be really interesting if the shoe does move to the other foot, because it's been a long time. The shoe has been on the foot of the employee. Mm. It will be interesting if it shifts, particularly with <laughs> another rabbit hole, but particularly with work from home, because yeah. if, if employment does start reducing and people start becoming a little bit fear, more fearful of their position, they may decide, you know what? I need to be more visible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, I'm not going to demand stay at home in my slippers in front of Zoom when I want to. <laughs> um, I'm going to have to turn up in the car park. I might even have to be the last person leaving so they value me and don't lose me. And, of course, the other the other way it could go, Jerry, is I want to work from home, but I'm willing to take a lower salary in yeah. order to take that job. And I think you could see both, I think you could see both of those play out. Yeah, absolutely. None of, none of those discussions have been had because the shoe has been firmly on the employee foot. It will be really interesting to see if that changes. At some point it will, it'll have to. Right, um, Adam, I'm going to pull a close to there because I know you've got to get on and thank you so much. It's been absolutely fascinating conversation. For those that have been listening and want to be able to read more, learn more from you, Adam, where's the best places to find you? So if you look on LinkedIn, I'm Adam G. Lawrence, so relatively easy to find. I've also got a YouTube channel that's called Propernomics, which is spelt with an X. So you see what I did there, mashed together property and economics. Um, <laughs> at the moment, we're recording this in December, and I'm doing an advent calendar every day where I try and do an explainer video of an economic concept relevant to property investors. So I'm putting them in a playlist, and people can look through them at their leisure and there's also an audio version of the supplement and a, a Sunday live that we do as well every week. So plenty of content on there. That's amazing. Thanks, Adam. Um, will you, while you're here, will you agree to come back and maybe do another episode more specifically about property? I'm very happy to do that, Jerry. Absolutely. Really enjoyed that conversation. It was That's fabulous. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I'll let you go on with your day. Thank you so much, Adam. Speak to you soon. Thank you. All the best. Mm -hmm.